Well, how many of you remember Easter last year? Easter last year, some of you have tried to forget, I think. That was that Sunday where we were probably the second week into our Zoom services and there was just that crushing sense of, this is wrong to be celebrating the resurrection day of our Lord all in our homes, separated from one another. And I remember just that, that sad feeling. And, and of course, that, you know, our family, we went and we visited each of you at your homes. Remember, we stood our safe distance out on your front porch and you opened your doors and, and let us greet you for resurrection day. But it just was not the same. And so, hallelujah, this is a very different day. And we celebrate a risen Savior, and we are looking at Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 14 this afternoon. We are, of course, continuing through our study of Proverbs in Ecclesiastes, but for Easter, it's hard to find a more appropriate passage than this one about the glory of our risen Savior, Hebrews 1, 1 through 14, partly chosen because once we finish our study of Proverbs and Ecclesiastes, we're, all, we're going to go right into the book of Hebrews. And so this will be a foretaste of what's to come. So Hebrews 1, 1 through 14, would you stand as we celebrate our risen Savior and the fact that this is God's holy and inspired word, God who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become so much better than the angels, as he has by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they, for to which of the angels did he ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. And again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. But when he again brings the firstborn into the world, he says, Let all the angels of God worship him. And of the angels, he says, Who makes his angels spirits and his ministers a flame of fire? But to the son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness more than your companions. And you, Lord, in the beginning laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain, and they will all grow old like a garment. Like a cloak, you will fold them up, and they will be changed, but you are the same, and your years will not fail. But to which the angels, as he ever said, sit at my right hand, till I make your enemies your footstool. Are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister for those who will inherit salvation? Let's pray. Father, as we rejoice in this day, as we celebrate a risen Savior and what that means, not only for us in the short term of being redeemed and forgiven our sins and, and given the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit and your strength and grace each day, but of what it means for eternity, a glorious lamb, a glorious risen lamb, a lion of the king of Judah, 
and us there to worship, to cast our crowns at his feet, to eternally be in your presence. And so we are, of all people, the most grateful this morning. And it's in Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen. You may be seated. Well, the overarching purpose of the book of Hebrews is to help the individual, typically an Israelite who had grown up under the Old Testament sacrificial system, to understand how Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament law, prophecy, and ceremony. The priesthood, the tabernacle and temple, the sacrificial system, everything pointed to Christ. And for the person who idolized Moses or even one of the prophets and the angels, Jesus, the author says, is superior. Verse 1 reminds us that God, during the Old Testament period before Christ, spoke through the prophets. And the simple test for one who claimed to speak for the Lord was that his words must unfailingly come to pass or he was to be put to death. In fact, though, the difference went even deeper than that because a prophet was uttering the words of God as revealed to him by the Holy Spirit. And the difference was whether or not he was just making up words from his own imagination or sharing something that was truly a part of God's redemptive plan. Ezekiel 13.3 says, Woe to the foolish prophets who follow their own spirit and have seen nothing. I mean, you could potentially get something right every once in a while, even following your own spirit, just being smart. But Ezekiel says, Woe to the foolish prophets who follow their own spirit. It's God who revealed His Spirit to the true prophets. And what did they reveal? If you survey the Old Testament prophecies, what you find is that all of the prophecies converge upon two themes. God's redemptive plan for His people and the advancement of His kingdom and glory. Why did God go to the trouble to reveal Himself to Israel? The answer to that question is found as far back as God's relationship with Adam and Eve. In the garden, God reveals himself daily as Adam and Eve enjoy an intimate and personal relationship with him. There's no need for further revelation because God is there among his people. And with the fall, the beginning of sin affects our fellowship with God. And so as time passes, generations came which did not know the Lord. And if God had not chosen to reveal himself, well, the knowledge of which Adam possessed and Eve possessed, would have faded in time, and our understanding of God would have become limited to the witness of God's creative work. It would have, as Paul says in in the book of Romans chapter 1, the creation would have revealed the invisible attributes of God. It would have shown us that God exists, that a powerful creator did fashion and make and organize all that is here, And yet it would not tell us specifically who he is or what his purposes are. And that's why over time God began to reveal himself again to his people. He called them to holiness. He called them to be a nation of kings and priests and to represent and carry his name before the other nations of the world. He even had them build a tabernacle and a temple. That would be a shadow of heavenly things and teach them about his merciful and holy character. But all of those had an ultimate purpose in mind, and that was the solution to man's biggest problem, 
which is sin. It all had to do with building God's kingdom, dealing with the fall of man, restoring this relationship with God and building his bride, all for his glory. And so the end of the biblical story, which we find in Revelation, is, is this picture of the restoration of mankind to personal fellowship with God for the rest of eternity. It's like a circle all the way back to Eden, right, where Adam and Eve were there with God in his presence. Well, we even have a tree of life in the book of Revelation. And then, if you look at, then at the middle parts, the middle prophecies, you look at Daniel and Ezekiel and others, what do you find? You find that consistent message supporting those bookends. God's message through Daniel was, I'm sovereign. I am the king over all things. I am over the nations of the earth and the succession of man's kingdoms are ultimately going to produce not only the kingdom of my son, but will be to my glory. What was the message through the prophet Ezekiel that despite God's judgment upon Israel in the future, that they could hold out hope for restoration of, and revival of God's perfect kingdom through the Messiah. And if you were to survey each of the prophets, you would find that the same message comes through over and over and again, pointing to God's kingdom, being established through the coming Savior, the Son of God, the Eternal King, the Prince of Peace, Emmanuel, God with us. So much did the prophet's message converge upon this theme that the people of Israel began to get it. <laughs> they began to look for the Messiah and anticipate the coming one. And, and so Herod asks the wise men that came from the east looking for Christ. He says, you know, look into the scriptures to his court advisors after he'd asked them, the wise men, where was this person to be born? And the court advisors gave him an answer because the wise men wouldn't give him an answer. He told them to come back and tell them the specifics, but they didn't come back. But he knew enough because Scripture was foretelling this coming Messiah. When Peter stood in the street of Jerusalem after Pentecost and delivered his very first sermon, what did he say? He uses the words of the prophets in the Old Testament, of Joel and others, and weaves them together into a united whole. Why? To say, this is what they anticipated. This is exactly what happened in our lifetime. The birth, the life, the ministry, the death, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. All of this is to say that we can understand the progression and intent of the writer of Hebrews when he says, well, friends, in these last days... That means right now, God has spoken to us through His Son. If the prophets all pointed to Christ, it makes sense that God's revelation would be in some way finished when the prophecies came to fruition and fulfillment in the coming of the one they were anticipating. When Jesus breathed, it is finished upon the cross. He was speaking of far more than just three years of ministry. That wasn't what he said when it's finished. He was speaking of thousands of years of redemptive anticipation, of redemptive promise and fulfillment. He was speaking of when God told Adam back in Genesis 3 that throw Satan and sin would bruise the heel 
of man and would trouble him for generations, yet God would ultimately triumph and be victorious and would send a Redeemer who would crush the serpent's head. When he says it is finished, he was speaking of God's promise to David in 1 Kings that one would come of his line who would sit upon the throne of God forever. He was speaking of Daniel's vision in Daniel 7 to a nation in exile of one like the Son of Man who would take the scroll of authority over the earth and the people of the earth from one like the Ancient of Days and would then rule. He was speaking of the fulfillment of the various words of the prophets spoken at various times and in various ways, as Hebrews says. That's what Christ meant when he said, it is finished. The redemption of mankind was complete. Can you imagine, in in some sense, even though the burden there upon the cross weighing so heavy, even as David read the words in Aramaic of Christ upon the cross of my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Even in the heaviness of that moment that it created the anxiety in the Garden of Gethsemane, powerful enough to bring drops of blood, yet what satisfaction there had to have been to know that millennia of preparation had come to an end. And it is finished. And that's what the church is commissioned to do and why Jesus told the disciples, go out into the nations and proclaim this message. And when you come across My sheep, they will recognize the voice of the shepherd. And so Jesus says, go and gather those sheep. Make disciples. Baptize them. Teach them so that they may join you in the effort. And so the Old Testament is this preparation for Christ. And the rest of the New Testament is a look backwards at Christ. And it's appropriate that even in our calendars, B.C. and A.D., you know, before Christ, Anno Domini, in the year of our Lord, center upon Christ's birth as the pivotal event in all of human history. It is the great hubris of man, right, to say B.C.E., before the common era. At least mankind recognized originally that the pivotal event was Christ. After Christ, everything is the latter days because it falls after His ministry upon earth. So because He is the center point of all God's redemptive plan, it is no wonder that the author of Hebrews says that Jesus is superior. And we look at these amazing things that are said about Him in chapter 1, verse 2, He was appointed heir of all things. Psalm 2 says of the Messiah, As for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. He said to me, Thou art my son, today I have begotten you. I will surely give this little section of the earth to you. No, he says, I will give the nations. I'll give the world. Satan tried to give him the world, but Satan didn't ultimately have the title to the world right because ultimately he was reigning over what was given to him and allowed to him by God but God says I have installed my king upon Zion my holy mountain there are my son today I have begotten you I will surely give the nations as your inheritance the very ends of the earth as your possession 
You shall break them with a rod of iron and shatter them like pottery. There's been a temptation with some to think that Psalm 2 means that God somehow gives up His throne to one of His creations. But that's why the author of Hebrews is careful to say that Jesus is the brightness of God's glory and the express image of His own person, upholding all things by the word of His power. What does that sound like, upholding all things by the word of His power? It has to remind you at least somewhat of Genesis 1. Has to remind you of the God who creates all things by his powerful word. Hebrews 1 supports what Paul says in Colossians 1, namely that all things were created by Christ, the Son of God, and for him, and that from him and through him and to him are all things. You see, Christianity believes on the testimony of Scripture that the Son of God is not a part of creation, but is the agent of creation Himself. It was through Him that all things were made that have been made. It is therefore understandable that Jesus as the incarnate Son should be considered the heir of creation. After all, He as the Son made it. We were talking in Philippians 2 this morning how He laid aside. And part of what He laid aside beyond the divine prerogative was like He set aside the title deed for a moment. I'll take it back up in a little bit as soon as this is finished. When Christ suffered upon the cross, became the substitute for us when He rose again, proving the Father's acceptance and His right to all things, He took it all back up again. What had been His to begin with. And as we move forward in Hebrews chapter 1 through verses 5 through 14, they seem so obvious as to almost not need clarification. If the incarnate Son, Jesus, is the culmination of God's revelation, if the Son is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of His being, as verse 3 says, if He, by the virtue of who He is and what He has done through the redemption of sin arising from the dead has inherited all things, then obviously He's superior to the angels. Right? I mean, we... It just seems so obvious as we read that. But was it obvious to the people of, of this author's time, to the people of the people of the first century? Well, it wasn't necessarily perfectly obvious, and the reason why is found in, in some of these next verses. Think about all that the Bible tells us about angels. Michael, the archangel, Gabriel. The angel over Israel. We hear about the angel of death. The angel of the Lord. And this list is, is long and it's enthralling as you read through the Old Testament. It's excitement. It's like an adventure story, right? These powerful beings. Hebrews 1.7 describes them as God's winds and flames of fire. Symbolic of their swiftness and their sweeping power. They're called ministers in verse 14. Ministering spirits. The angels serve God. They carry His messages to His people. They announce great events like the birth of Christ and the resurrection. In this way, they're like prophets making known God's revelation. But they're more than messengers, more than prophets. And we begin to see as the author progresses in Hebrews from the prophet to the angel that the angels were held in great awe in early Israel. They performed God's will 
They warned and protected and helped and rescued. I'm reminded, for example, in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 2, where we read, if the message spoken by angels was binding and every violation and disobedience received its just punishment, how shall we escape if we ignore such a great salvation? And you have to ask then this natural question, well, what was the message spoken by angels? What was that message? What was the message actually spoken on Mount Sinai? But you thought God gave the law to Moses on Mount Sinai, right? Well, he did, but he gave it to Moses through the mediation of angels. Now, if you didn't know that, Acts chapter 7 gives us clarity on that. Acts 7.38, Stephen says to the Jews who persecute him, this is Moses who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him on Mount Sinai. And with our fathers, the one who received the living oracles to give to us. And then Stephen says a little bit further in Acts chapter 7, verse 53, that the Jews received the law by the direction of now angels, plural, and have not kept it. We have now the words of Paul on the matter in Galatians 3.19 when he says, What then was the purpose of the law? It was added because of transgressions until the seed to whom the promise referred had come. The law was put into effect through angels by mediator. Many of you have probably struggled perhaps with knowing that no man can see God and live face to face. You, you have that section a little bit later in the book of, of Exodus where uh, Moses asks the Lord to pass before him and God says, well, you can't look on me and live, right? So hide yourself in the cleft of the rock and I'll pass. Almost like I'll, I'll go backwards and I'll, the, my glory will pass by you. And then he comes with the radiance on his face. You go, oh, wait a second. I thought he spent days with him on the mountain and God inscribed the words on the tablets of stone. Well, this is now so much helpful, I, more helpful, I hope, for you to realize that the New Testament is clarifying for us that Moses received the law through the mediation of angels who spoke in God's name. And, and it's not surprising, really, that that might be the case because so often the words of God and the revelation of God to man, whether it's Gideon or someone else, comes through God's ministering angel, Joshua and, and so many others. So when we realize perhaps then it is, it's obvious also that for the first century reader who's listening to the book of Hebrews and reading the book of Hebrews, they're going, angels. They're, they're next to divine beings. In fact, there was uh, a, a religion at that time. It was kind of a perversion of Christian faith and, and mysticism and, and spiritism. And it was called Gnosticism that viewed angels as divine beings that were like little gods. And so the author of Hebrews is saying, were angels important? Yes. Angels killed thousands of Israel's enemies. A single angel. Even thousands of Israel's at a time when they were disobedient. They were present at the very beginning of God's works. They sung in praise at laying the foundation of the world. If you are trying to think of something as impressive as you could, don't go to a man or a woman, go to an angel. They're far more impressive. But as remarkable as those beings are, they are dwarfed when placed back to back with the Son of God. 
And so by using several Old Testament passages as, as essentially little spots on a measuring stick, the author compares these two together. Hebrews says Jesus is superior to the angels because of his unique relationship to the Father. The angels are God's what? They're ministers. They're servants. Jesus alone is his son. Verse 4 says, Having become so much better than the angels, he has by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. For to what angel did he ever say, You are my son? Today I have begotten you. That's a quote from Psalm 2.7. Or I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. A quote from 2 Samuel 7.14. No angel has ever been called the Son of God. Jesus Christ not only greater than the angels because of the name and the position that he holds, but also because he alone is worshipped. Hebrews 1.6 says, But when he again brings the firstborn into the world, he says, Let all the angels... Now, obviously, we will worship too, but... The angels will be worshiping also. That's a quote from Psalm 97.7. The Jews should not have been surprised by the author's point there. The fact is that these very words come out of their own scriptures. But did not angels always worship Christ? Yes. They had worshipped the Son throughout all the time of their existence, but prior to His incarnation, they had worshipped Him as God. Now they are to also worship Him as the Lamb of God. God the Son, who has become man, is higher than the angels. And it's an absolute sin and violation, the most basic of God's law, to worship anyone but God. So if God Himself says that the angels are to worship the Son, what is the only natural conclusion? We're not polytheists. The Son must also be God. Jesus is also superior to the angels because He has an eternal throne. Verse 8 says, And of the angels, He says, Who makes them spirits and His ministers a flame of fire? Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. Therefore, your God has anointed you with the oil of gladness more than your companions. Jesus, it says, loved righteousness. Every good thing bestowed, every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. And Jesus says, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. There is no change in the goodness of God. He is all-powerful. He is all-present. He is all-good. Never varies from what is true. Says that you love righteousness, you hate lawlessness. John would later write, and this is the message we have heard from him and announced to you that God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. God never varies, his character is always the same. And displayed in everything that the Son did was his love for righteousness, and even more than the psalmist could he say, Oh, how I love thy law, it is my meditation all the day. And then the risen Christ has been exalted. You read about that in the remaining verses of Hebrews 1. You, Lord, in the beginning laid the foundation of the earth. The heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will grow old like a garment, but you are the same. And your years will not fail. But to which of the angels 
as he said, I will make your enemies your footstool. Right? No angel has ever been promised a place like that. Only the sun sits there. The footstool is not for the angels. The footstool is for the feet of the sun. And the destiny of Jesus Christ said ultimately everything and everyone in the universe will be subject to him. And at the name of Christ, every knee shall bow, every tongue confess that he is Lord of lords, King of kings, to the glory of God. And I like what we find in Revelation 19.15. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should strike the nations, and he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. Remember Psalm 2? You shall rule with a rod of iron and, and shatter the nations that are arrayed against you as your enemies like what? Pottery. Like just this, a piece of a metal rod going through a, a very fragile pottery shop, all breaking into shards. And it says, he treads the winepress of the fierceness and the wrath of Almighty God, and he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. That is an impressive passage. Treading the winepress of God's wrath is the one who has written upon his robe, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. That's the Son. And so, yes, man, angel, wow. But angel, son, bigger wow, right? And the destiny of angels is in verse 14. They will minister to the throne. Their destiny is to serve what? Not only the throne of God, but the author says, and to render service for the sake of those who will inherit salvation. The actual destiny of the angels in the long-term future, i.e. eternity, is to not only be God's ministers, but to serve God's glorified people. So in this brief 14-verse section of Hebrews, we see the deity of Christ affirmed, established he is called the son lord god he created sustains all things he rules over all creation he redeemed his people through the cross then he rose again inheriting a name and a position greater than even the angels why are those truths important well the first verse of chapter two gives the answer therefore as a conclusion to all of these amazing things we must give the more earnest heed to the things we have heard lest we drift away. For if the word spoken through angels proves steadfast, ah, there again you've got the word spoken through angels, i.e. the law and principles of God given to God's people, and yet what do we do with God's word? We so easily ignore it. We so easily pass by and the author says, if the word spoken through angels of God proves steadfast and every transgression and disobedience has received a just reward, how shall we escape if we neglect this? It's like everything that you got before now was a shadow of what was to come. It was a preparation for what was to come. It was a revelation of what was going to happen. But now... The event has taken place. Christ came. He lived. He died. He rose again. 
And if you are going to be able to ignore God's Word through angels, what do you think is going to... And that's going to result in the, the wrath of God against you. What do you think is going to happen if you neglect Christ? The fulfillment of all of that? If you neglect so great a salvation... It's a good question for you to think about this afternoon, and I pray that you don't neglect its import. We've been given the testimony of God in the creation of the universe. We've been given the principles and the law of God through the mediation of His creatures, through His angels. We have the moral law now of God even written upon our hearts through our conscience in Christ. Each of these convicts us of the truth of God's creative work. Should not the life and ministry, death and resurrection of God the Son move us in even more? What you do with Jesus Christ is all important. Your rejection or your submission to Him is so much more important than your rejection or acceptance of men or women. Jesus is the heir of all things. Your employer is not the heir of all things. Your spouse is not the heir of all things. Nor does he or she sustain all things by their word. They might act like it, but they don't. (laughs) The truth of the matter is, only the Son sustains all things by their word. And because Jesus is the heir of all things, God incarnate in the end... What he says and wants is all that matters. And he will have all things in subjection to him, either willingly in faith or willingly because of force. This is great assurance for us who do come in faith to God because we know that he has, therefore, the power and the authority to keep his promises. If he says, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth, then we we believe that. He can make good on that promise because he will own the earth and have it under his control. If we see in the word, it says, nothing in all creation will separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. In Romans 8.39, then he will make good on that promise because he owns all creation. He is all powerful. He has all things under his control. He is the heir of creation. There shall no longer, it says in Revelation 21.1, say, be death or mourning or crying or pain anymore, well, he can make good on that promise too. Because he will rule unhindered over all the causes, pain and death and crying and everything else. But there's another assurance as well, and that is those who continue to rebel against Christ are considered to be enemies of God. And so later on in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 12, it says this, having offered one sacrifice for sin for all time, Christ was buried Yes, but that was not the end. Christ also rose and was exalted and given dominion over all things. And so the author says, And so Christ sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time onward until his enemies be made the footstool for his feet. So Hebrews chapter 1 reminds us that God said this is going to happen. But in Hebrews 10, we are reminded that he is now waiting for that to take place. And it will happen. 
in Revelation 5 describes a scene in which only the risen Christ, the Lamb of God, receives the worship of angels of men and they cry out, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power, wealth, and wisdom, and might, and honor, and glory, and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth in the sea, all therein saying, To him who sits upon the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. And that is the closing scene. I know there's more that goes on in the book of Revelation, but Revelation 5 is like, ah, this is what it looks like for eternity. This, all the created order before the throne of God, the Lamb of God slain upon a Christ, rose again, reigning forever. It's the one great event towards which all creation is moving. Is that the direction towards which you are moving today? If you were to look at the trajectory of your life, is it to lay and cast your crowns down at the feet of that risen Lamb? Would you be able to say that what you are deciding now, that where the direction of, of your investments, the direction of your thought process and, and your decision making, everything about your life, that it is towards that trajectory? That's where all creation is moving what a jarring change it would be, right? To have you going this direction. When all of creation and history is moving this direction, then God, if you are His, and He's merciful, and He goes, <laughs> usually through some kind of tragedy or trial or, or something that shakes you awake from where you were headed, or perhaps if you're not His, and then footstool at Jesus' feet. So Hebrews 1 relates us to the most momentous event the ages have ever seen. The Lord of glory born as a baby in Bethlehem so that He might be the deliverer of His people by being Christ on a cross and then inheriting the title of King of Kings in rising from the dead. That's what the Bible is about. And friends, God, yes, is long-suffering. But don't let that fool you into thinking that He won't do something about sin. Don't let that fool you into thinking that you can go down that direction for very long without hearing about it from the Lord if you're His. What I'm praying instead is that we come to a passage like this in Hebrews 1 and we are reminded of the glory of who Christ is. We are reminded of the things that we often, you know, don't think about angels because you, don't, you haven't grown up in a culture in a generation that venerates angels. You can't appreciate the way the Israelites thought about angels in the first century. Put instead money, put instead whatever idol you have in the angel's place. And the author of Hebrews is saying, the Son of God is superior to that. For to what dollar bill did God ever say you will inherit all of creation? No. That's what He said to His Son. And so He calls you in this remembrance of something so glorious to a life of recommitment. And I pray that that's the truth of what you hear today. What, what you leave saying, I want my life trajectory to be towards the throne of God in Revelation 5.
And I will not stop until I have ruthlessly examined everything and conformed it to that direction. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Christ is risen. Amen. Let's pray. Father, you are the great God over all. You have created all things. You have given us so much. And ironically and sadly, we elevate that as the idols of our lives, especially money and success and family and whatever it is. And so, Lord, you call us today. You've given us this example for the first century readers of the angels and what they thought was important and represented something worthy of awe. Lord, I pray that we would topple all of our idols today and we would put in their place the Son of God. Thank you for reminding us that he has inherited a name above all others. That he rules. And that we are to obey in love and kiss the Son. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.